0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink for Yahweh's Covenant People, and Eli James and Ken Gregg, who will not be with us tonight due to an engagement they have in Alabama. I'm all alone tonight, and I would like to discuss the identity passages in the letters of Paul. Paul's epistles prove over and over again that the people to whom he was writing and and visiting, they had to be the Israelites of the dispersion. This is little understood by most Bible students who generally do not study history, and if they do, they rarely study it deep enough to even begin to understand that the development of European culture began in the East, and especially through the several dispersions of the ancient children of Israel. If one does not study history, how could one even begin to understand prophecy which is actually a symbolical account of historic events written in advance. In the 19th century, when the Bible was still an important part of the classical education that filled school curriculums, through the relatively new field sciences of anthropology and archaeology and the relics being dug out of the ground in the Near Eastern deserts, many educated men did discover this truth, and the virtual explosion of related books helped to form a new Christian belief system, commonly referred to today as British identity. But under the powerful influence of the Jews in academia, an influence which has far outweighed their actual numbers since they are so strongly backed by their much more powerful and wealthy brethren in the financial, industrial, and communication sectors, British identity, being readily infiltrated by these people, soon grew very stale And being stifled in development, it stopped learning and and advancing in the knowledge of the truth. Today its influence is highly marginalized, and and it's laughed at by theologians and academics everywhere, while it is also itself far too impotent to challenge those scoffers. This is what happens to the intellectually bankrupt and theologically lukewarm among Christians – they end up falling back into a defensive position and often they have to retreat. In reality, the gospel insists that one must become an outcast on account of the truth or become a laughingstock. So we see the reason for Yahshua Christ's warning at Luke 22, 6.22 where he states, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they separate from you and they reproach and they cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. If one really taught the truth, one should be hated and not laughed at, or even merely dismissed. Yet we owe the early British Israel identity adherents a great debt, for it was they who wrote many of the books that helped us to open our own eyes to the origination and the identity of the Saxon and Celtic peoples of Europe. Even today, we have surely moved far beyond Even though today we have surely moved far beyond their incomplete revelation, that revelation can allow one to open his eyes to the true meaning of the Gospels and the the other New Testament scriptures. The revelation had to come in stages. The British-Israel message is incomplete in that it considers only the British to be Israel and the rest of Europe to be peopled by Gentiles, while the Jews they, they still maintain are Judah. In truth, the British for the most part descend from the so-called lost tribes of Israel, but so did the rest of the Germanic peoples and also many of the early Mediterranean people, namely the Dorian and and Greeks, the Phoenicians, and the Romans. And Paul's epistles show this, and, and we will expose that tonight. The dispersions of Israel did not begin with the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. Rather, there is ancient ancient testimony that even by the time of the Exodus, many Israelites left from Egypt to dwell in areas of Greece and Anatolia. From these came the Trojans, from whom are descended the Romans, and also the and Greeks. The early Trojan War was probably the first Israelite Civil War. The Israelites continued to emigrate after the conquest of Palestine and from these later emigrants we had the Dorian Greeks many of the Phoenicians who who founded colonies in Colicior and Miletus and Anatolia at Carthage and other places of North Africa and from there the Malaysians, they founded colonies in turn in the Danube River Valley in Thessaly and and in Sicily, Italy Iberia Ireland and Britain all of this went on for several hundred years before the Assyrian deportations and which, which ultimately gave us the Saxons and the Chimerians from here we, we shall see from Paul's epistles that the Greeks and Romans whom he wrote to were indeed dispersed Israelites first it must be said that Paul never went to a Gentile the word is not at all in Paul's lexicon Nearly everywhere that Paul uses the Greek word ethnos, it should be translated nation. And in Paul's writing, it usually refers to those nations which had been promised to come out of Abraham's seed over 2,000 years before Paul wrote. This will be made clearly evident here tonight. We will start with the epistle to the Romans. Now before we start, I know that there are many seemingly universalist statements in Paul. One example is right here in Romans 1-5, at least as it reads in the King James Version, where it says, for obedience to the faith among all nations. In reality, the definite article, V, appears in the Greek before the word nations and not before the word faith. Therefore, the pericope would more appropriately read, for obedience of faith among by all of the nations, specific nations. In Romans chapter 4, Paul fully explains how the faith of Abraham is not only that he was obedient, but also that he believed Yahweh when Yahweh told him that his offspring would become many nations. And these very nations are those of Paul's epistles. And Paul knew this. So all of the seemingly universalist passages in Paul can actually be proven to be very specific and not universalist at all once the context of the Bible is understood. Without context, like any other book, the Bible becomes gibberish. Gibberish is the Jewish ideal, and gibberish is what the Judeo-controlled churches teach. I'd like to start with Romans 1:20 to 20-23. Namely, the unseen things of his from the creation of the order are clearly observed, being understood in the things made, both of his eternal power and divinity. For this they are inexcusable, because knowing Yahweh, they thought of them not as God, nor were they thankful, but they became foolish in their reasonings, and were dark in their hearts void of understanding. Alleging to be wise, they became fools. Now Paul is talking about Romans to Romans, and he goes on to say in 23, and they changed the estimation of the incorruptible Yahweh into a resemblance of an image of corruptible man. In verse 24, Paul goes on to state, on which account Yahweh hands them over to uncleanness in the passions of their hearts. Now, Yahweh strengthens us or Yahweh, strengthens us, or Yahweh allows us to fall into sin when we are disobedient. And that's clear clearly what Paul is saying here. Not that Yahweh causes the sin himself. First, the Romans, as Paul says, had the truth of Yahweh and changed it. Second, Yahweh hands them over into sin. These remarks can be made of Israel alone, or Paul is delusional. Rather, Paul tells us that where there is no law, neither is there sin, Romans 4.15. Paul's not delusional as, as will become clearly apparent here, but rather he's teaching Israel identity. Israel identity is is basically the 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 belief in Christianity and, and the need the the apparent need which which is clear to identify the parties of the Bible, the parties of the covenant who the enemies of of Yahshua Christ are, and and that's the purpose for for this religion. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, For as many as have done wrong without law, without law then are they cleansed. I know that the King James Version there has, uh, do they perish? But that is... Not what Paul is teaching, because he's teaching that all Israel will be saved later on in Romans. The Zara, ancest- the Zara Judah ancestors of the Romans and many Dan and Greeks who were of the tribe of Dan had departed for Egypt before the Exodus, and therefore they never received the law at Sinai. Romans 2.12 says that those outside the law shall be cleansed and not perish, which is translated confusion over the root of the verb apoluo. There's two verbal forms that this verb, translated perish in the King James Version, can be traced to in Greek. Apoluo, it is to put off or, or to to Perish, but it's also to cleanse or to wash, and there's two different verbs that are that are extremely close, and both forms often appear in the Bible. It can be established that this form used here in Romans two twelve can belong to either of those two words, since Joshua came to redeem those who were under the law, surely the Romans would wonder about this because they were never their zara Judah ancestors were never given the law. And here Paul is alleviating any concern. For the Romans, being Israelites, would be cleansed by the blood of Christ, regardless of of not having the law. Paul goes on in in Romans 2.13 to say, Since not the hearers of the law are just before Yahweh, but the performers of the law are to be considered just. For when the nations, which do not have the law, by nature practice the things of the law... These, not having law, themselves are a law, who exhibit, and this is important, the work of the law written in their hearts, bearing witness with their conscience, and between one another, considering accusations, or then defending the accused. Now, this is is a direct explanation by Paul concerning the fulfillment of the prophecy found at Jeremiah 31, thirty one thirty three in the Greek and the Roman and, and and in the Greek and Roman people, Paul is saying that this prophecy is fulfilled because the prophecy is about the Israelites and the house of Israel and the house of Judah and the promise by Yahweh to write the law in their hearts. So Paul is explaining that the Romans building a, a society which is which was opposite Hey, this is William Fink okay, this is william Fink and and all of the power in my whole little hamlet here in Norwich, New York just lost power. um I'd hope to bring the to bring the panel back up in a minute and and my notes, and I will try to continue my discourse and hopefully we've had some bad thunderstorms here all day today and all afternoon at least and and hopefully it'll it'll leave me alone now
1: basically in
0: in Jeremiah chapter 31 Paul is is demonstrating by citing by citing this that that the the Romans and the Greeks who who his epistle to the Romans is directed to is 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 fulfilled in them they built a society based on the rule of law and and demonstrate the works of the law written in their hearts as paul explains
1: here in romans chapter 2 i just love this technical difficulty
0: Okay, I think I have it. I, I hope that I'm still on the forum. I can't even tell if I'm still on the forum or, or if I'm in the call or not. The, um, if the recording is still going, I have no control panel. I don't have access yet to the to the program, and and that's because the design of TalkShoe, the the phone system and the forum are disconnected from each other. Which has its
1: advantages and its disadvantages. Okay,
0: can somebody please tell me if they can hear me? Thank you, Dave. I'm, I'm I just lost all of my all of my communications and all of my power here at one time. And I think I, I hope I'm back to normal now. We had bad thunderstorms all evening. To pick up where I left off, the Zarajudah ancestors of the Romans and many Dan and Greeks of the tribe of Dan had departed Egypt before the Exodus, and therefore never received the Law at Sinai. Romans 2:12 says that those outside the Law shall be cleansed and not perish, which is a translator confusion over the root of the verb. Since Yahshua came to redeem those who were under the law, surely the Romans would wonder about this. And here Paul alleviates any concern, for the Romans were still Israelites. In this passage, Paul is explaining the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Jeremiah 31, 31-33, in the Greek and Roman people who all lived in a society based upon a rule of law and a sense of justice. He also looks to the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 and the utterance that Israel and Judah would one day one day be one stick, a prophecy that has long been fulfilled in Christianity, that prophecy Jude, the Jews are not Judah and will never be a part of that prophecy. Romans 4.1 Paul says, now what may we say that our forefather Abraham has found concerning the flesh? By saying our forefather, Paul means the forefather of both himself and of the Romans. The King James Version, following some late manuscripts, has only our father. But the greatest number of early manuscripts, and all of those which predate the 5th century, clearly have forefather in the text surely one may attempt to spiritualize as the mainstream churches do the word father but forefather is absolutely genetic already by paul's time the white world had become dominated by romans the greeks the galatahi or the gauls and the scythians which are the the germans and the scythians actually and, and that includes also the Parthians who, who had come to rule Persia, and all of those were descended from the Israelites of the various dispersions. Paul is saying to the Romans, Abraham, our forefather, he can only be saying that to people who descended from Abraham. Romans four eighteen, who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, and Paul's speaking about Abraham for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. Now, this is Paul's definition of the faith of Abraham. and, And there's really no other explanation for his saying this, except that. Now, the church imagines the promise to Abraham to be that many nations would become Abraham's offspring. But that is not what the promise says. And most Christians and clerics, when asked to describe just what the faith of Abraham was, would stare in bewilderment or mutter something nondescript about the sacrifice of Isaac. Here, Paul defines the faith of Abraham, that his offspring would become many nations. Paul knew where those nations were, and that is why he went to where he did, and that is why he wrote to whom he did. There was no Paul in Ethiopia, there was no Paul in Arabia, there was no Paul in Egypt, Paul in Libya, Paul in India, or Paul in China. There was no Paul in Swaziland, there was no Pauline epistle to Nigeria, and there was was only Paul among the white nations of Europe, period. Now, to, to take a diversion from Romans for a minute, in the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul defends his mission to the dispersed nations of Israel, where he says in Hebrews 6.13, For Yahweh, in having promised to Abraham, since he had by no one greater to swear, swore by himself, saying, Truly, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so having patience, he obtained that promise and and by Paul saying that Abraham obtained that promise that means that he was already the father of many nations so we have to identify those nations in history where are they the jews by Abraham's time have not fulfilled that promise and they still haven't fulfilled that promise in roman in i'm sorry in hebrews chapter 11 verse 11 paul states through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is inu- of the sea which is innumerable. And Paul is telling us, that this promise to Abraham was already fulfilled it it had already happened that the 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 faith of Abraham is the belief that his offspring would become many seed that's how would that his offspring would become many nations and that's how Paul defines it and and that's if you go study the genesis account that's that's absolutely true in Romans five twelve to 21, Paul defines the word Adam, and he defines that by making an equation. In, in verse 12, he says, for this reason, just as by one man, which is the Greek word anthropos, the common word for man, failure of sin, you know, failure of purpose, which is sin, entered into the society, and by that failure of purpose or sin, death. And in that manner, death is passed to all men on account that all have done wrong. Now, Paul goes on, and, and in in verse 14, he states that Adam is an image of the future. He, he's defining man. And here Paul equates the term for man with Adam-man. And therefore, in every single passage in which Paul uses the term man or men, we can only imagine him to be referring to white men because that's what the word Adam is. And and it can be clearly demonstrated that all of Adam's descendants were white men. They could all blush and show blood in the face, as, as James Strong defined that word over a hundred years ago. It, it's reassuring that Adam is an image of the future with everything that's going on in this country today and, and in the rest of Christendom. Romans chapter 6 will not be covered. I won't cover it here at length, but a few things must be mentioned in relation to it. Paul's discourse about sin and guilt and those Israelites which are in Christ Yahshua can certainly be directly related to Galatians 4, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. That when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law and that we would recover the position of sons. It doesn't say adoption. It is wholly evident from the Old Testament and history that only Israel was ever under the law. The psalmist says at Psalm 147, 19 to 20, He showeth His word unto Jacob, His statutes, and His judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. If the Romans are not Israelites, there's no need for Paul to write about any of these things. And Paul quoted the Psalms all the time. He's not taking them out of context. It's the mainstream so-called Christian religions that take the entire Bible out of context. Romans chapter 7 Verses 1 to 12, I'm I'm going to read the entire 12 verses, and, and this is my translation. Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by law, but if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, if the husband should die... She is free, I'm sorry, so then as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man, but if the husband should die, she is free from the law, she is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another, who from the dead was raised, in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. And and now here Paul is not changing the subject from sin, which is what he talks about all throughout Romans chapter six, to give the Romans a lesson in domestic relations. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And this is how Yahshua Christ fulfilled the law. Being Yahweh having come in the flesh to die, the husband being dead, thereby freed the wife Israel from the law. Yahshua Christ himself addressed the same marriage relationship with Israel at Luke sixteen sixteen, where he says, and, and he's not talking about domestic relations either. He, I'm going to paraphrase what he says. He says that the law and the prophets were to, until John, and from that time the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presses his way into it. Yet, He who divorces his wife and marries somebody else commits adultery. In other words, every man that tries to claim to be a Christian is not going to end up in the marriage relationship between Israel and Yahshua. Because if Yahshua marries them, he's committing adultery. That's why he goes into the marriage and and adultery relationship in Luke 16, verses 16 through 18. There's no other, he's not suddenly talking about the prophets and then breaking the the chain of thought to talk about domestic relations he's talking about the prophets and continuing to explain the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel as Paul explains it here in Romans 7 verses 1 through 12 that's what that's about in in Romans chapter 8 in verses 15 and 23 as well in chap as in chapter 9 verse 4 we see the word adoption in the King James and most other versions of the Bible. The Greek word is huiothesia. The Greek word huiothesia does not mean adoption at all. The word means the position of a son or the placing of a son into a position. Now, there is no doubt that the word was used in connection with adoption, and I have citations of that from Greek writers such as Strabo. But that, the actual act of adoption was described by another Greek word, eispoiesis, which means to make into use of a son whom you have adopted. The placing of a son, or the huiothesia, can be done for other reasons other than adoption, such as placing the son in the position as an heir, as an heir. This is the way that the word is used in Scripture. It's the placing of a son. That is what it means. It does not mean adoption. Adoption should never appear in the New Testament. Knowing this, Romans 8:15 through 17 says, Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons, in which we cry, Father, Father, that same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. And if children, then heirs. Heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. Now Paul said, and if children, then heirs. One must be a child of Israel first, and then one is an heir. But one cannot be made an heir if one is not one of Abraham's offspring through Jacob in the first place. The children of Israel were in bondage to the law. That's who Paul's talking about. Now, free from that law and no longer bound to perform rituals in order to have their sin alleviated, they are to seek the position of sons through obedience in Christ. The Romans are Israel. For only Israel can take on bondage anew. Or in other words, we're already once bound by the law. Once you understand the context of scripture, all of these little things which Paul says makes perfect sense. They make no sense at all if they're spoken to some alien people who had no part in the old covenant. To go on in Romans eight to verses eighteen to thirty nine, Considering these verses, the term the whole creation, which Paul talks about, which is also translated creature, the whole creature in in the King James, and and that's the same word kathesis in the Greek, it is certainly only the Adamic creation which is meant by the terms whole creation. Because at verse 38 in Romans chapter 8, this whole creation is contrasted to Any other creation, which is the way the King James words it. And so again we see the scope of the epistle is limited to the Adamic race. The phrase, the whole creation, cannot mean everything in the universe, but only the whole of one particular species. Or it could not be compared to other creations or other types of created beings. Such as the angels in in Romans 8.38. So we see that Paul considered each type of species or entity to be its own creation. When he says every creature or the whole creation, he's talking about the whole Adamic creation. Yahweh in Isaiah said to Israel, I have created you. I have formed you. That is signifying that Israel is one creation. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Upon the sacrifice of Isaac on the altar by Abraham, even though Yahweh spared Isaac, Yahweh also supplied the substitute ram to be sacrificed. And therefore, once Isaac was placed on that altar, everything within Isaac became the exclusive property of Yahweh. The importance of this cannot be diminished. It was a common practice in the ancient world to dedicate offerings of property or persons upon the altar of a god. And once such was done, the object of the dedication became the exclusive property of that god and deemed by all to be sacrosanct. It was was considered a serious offense punishable even by death to impiously violate the temple property of a god. From that time, from the time that Isaac was sacrificed, his offspring, which includes both Jacob and Esau, became the sole property of Yahweh, whether they like it or not. All biblical and world history for the future would resolve around these two nations which came out of rebecca's womb and I must say that indeed it has is es- Esau rebelled from Yahweh? He must have known that his grandfather Abraham despised the Canaanites. And there's a statement in Genesis 24, 3, where Abraham says to his servant, And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Esau must have been aware of Abraham, his grandfather's dislike for the Canaanites, yet he married Canaanite women anyway. While we must turn to the extra-biblical histories, to prove that the Edomites had infiltrated and usurped the kingdom of Judea by the time of Joshua Christ, it is surely implicit in scripture in many places, and for that reason, here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is comparing the Israelite Judeans and the Edomite Judeans. He he expresses a concern for his brethren, where Paul discusses the scope of the covenants here in Romans 9, 1-4. He's expressing a concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh, and he goes on to compare Jacob and Esau. And that's because Judea at Paul's time is peopled by true Israelites and by Edomites. The Edomites are cursed. Their descendants of the cursed Canaanites. Yahweh says that he hated Esau, and Paul quotes it here. However, where Paul discusses the scope of the covenants here, the Romans certainly must have known by this time, that they were Israelites, they descended from the dispersion of Israel, and they were included in that, or it would have been pointless for Paul to be writing to them about these things in the first place. Yet Paul himself reassures them of this, where in verse 10, he refers to Isaac as Isaac our father. Meaning, that like Abraham, whom Paul called the forefather of himself in the Romans, back in chapter 4, Isaac was the father of both Paul and the Romans. This is also evident of the Galatians in 4.28, where Paul tells the Galatians, who are Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, and we brethren, down through Isaac, are children of the promise. Romans 9, verse 19, says, Therefore you will say to me, Yet why does he, meaning Yahweh, find fault? Indeed, who has resisted his purpose? But rather, O man, who are you to be arguing against Yahweh? Will the figure say to its fabricator, Why did you make me in this manner? Or does the potter not have authority over the clay to make from out of the same lump, meaning Isaac, one vessel for honor and one for dishonor? Moreover, if Yahweh wishes to display wrath and to make known his power, "...with much patience, having bore vessels of wrath furnished for destruction, and so that he will make known the wealth of his honor upon vessels of mercy, which he previously prepared for honor, whom he has also called us not only from among the Judeans, but also from out of the nations." Meaning, those very same nations that Paul discussed in in Romans chapter 4, Those nations that Abraham had faith would come from his offspring. These are the nations Paul's going to. Paul's going to no other nations. Here Paul explains that those receiving mercy are of Jacob. And those not receiving mercy, the unbelievers from whom the Jews of today are in large part descended, are of Esau. The nations are the nations of Israel, as Paul demonstrates well in the verses that follow. At Romans nine twenty-five to 29, appealing to the prophecies of Hosea and Isaiah, which concern the dispersed of Israel, and that's very clear in the rest of Romans chapter 9. In the verses at 39, Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, Paul contrasts dispersed Israel with the remnant of Israel, which at that time sought to be justified by the law and failed. The poor rendering of these verses by most modern translations only leads to confusion. In Romans chapter 11, Paul states, Now I say, did they stumble in order that they would fall? Certainly not. But in their fall is preservation to the nations. He's still talking about his kinsmen, his brethren according to the flesh, the true Israelites in Judea. And he says in verse 12 in in chapter 11, But if their fall is the wealth of the society, and their deceit the wealth of the nations, how much more their fullness! Indeed, I speak to you, the nations... Because I am ambassador of the nations, I honor my office. If possibly, I would provoke to jealousy my kinsmen and preserve some from among them. Indeed, if the disposal of them is the reconciliation of society, what would be the acceptance, if not life from among the dead? Paul is often criticized for these poorly understood verses. The truth is that in the failure of the true Judahites of Judea, the Edomites were able to have Christ crucified. After the resurrection, the gospel of redemption and reconciliation with Yahweh is able to go to the dispersed of Israel, who by having committed adultery had been put off 700 years before and alienated from Yahweh. Paul hopes that his mission to the dispersed of Israel shall awaken from slumber those very same Judahites, who allowed the Edomites to get away with the murder of Christ. Paul has already explained in Romans 9, 1-13 that he only cares for the true Judahites and not the Edomites in Judea. Yet without the death of Yahweh on the cross at the hands of the enemy, or as Peter explains in Acts two twenty three through lawless hands, there would be no redemption for Israel, because Yahshua had to die in order to fulfill the law, as Paul explains in Romans chapter seven one. So we, say, we see that the entire context of Paul's epistle to the Romans is the transgression and the redemption of Israel. Romans eleven verse sixteen. Now now this is extremely this is probably the most poorly understood passage in the Bible. And I'm going to read the whole thing in from my translation. Now if the first fruit is sacred, then also the balance. And if the root is sacred, then also the branches. But if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, having become a partaker of the richness of the root of the olive tree, you must not exult over the branches. But if you exult, You will not sustain the root, nor the root you. Now you will say, those branches have been broken off in order that I would be grafted in? Correct. In disbelief they were broken off, and in faith you stand. Be not proud, but reverent. Indeed, if Yahweh spared not the natural branches, perhaps you may not be spared. Behold, then, the goodness and severity of Yahweh. Certainly upon those who have fallen, severity. But upon the goodness of Yahweh... But the goodness of Yahweh upon you, if you then abide in that goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Moreover, they also, if they do not remain in disbelief, shall be grafted in. Indeed, Yahweh is able to graft them in anew. If you, from out of a naturally wild olive tree, had been cut off, and contrary to nature, have been grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more those natural ones be grafted into their own olive tree. Now, it has to be kept in mind that when Paul's talking about the people of Judea, he's already defined that in Romans chapter 9, he only cares about the true Israelites in Judea and not the Edomites, whom he also explained to us in Romans chapter nine, are vessels of destruction. There's no recovery for them. There's no possibility of their being a part of the covenants. The word for good olive tree is the way the King James translates it here, and and that's very poor. And it should be cultivated olive tree as opposed to the wild olive tree. The Romans had to be grafted in because their ancestors, the, the, their Zara Judah ancestors, had left the main body of Israel before the giving of the law at Sinai. Therefore, they were wild olives as opposed to cultivated olives. Now, Paul does not give this example to any of the Greeks whom he wrote to. And their ancestors were at Sinai and once had the law. This is entirely evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul's writing to Dorian Greeks. They were, had the law, and they, they were not wild olives, even though they lost it after the, after their, their migration out of Palestine. Nevertheless, Paul talks to them in, in the terms of redemption and reconciliation, where he talks to the Romans, whose ancestors did not have the law, However, they were still Israelites, and he tells them that they're wild olives that need to be grafted in. Nobody who's not a a Roman Trojan can take this passage and apply it to himself and say, Hey, I can be part of the covenant too. That can't be done. This is being addressed to Romans, and only to Romans. In Romans 15, verses 8 to 12, Paul states, Therefore I say... Joshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of Yahweh for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers and to the nations for the sake of mercy honor Yahweh just as it is written for this reason I will profess you among the nations and I will sing of your name and again it says rejoice O nations with his people and again Praise and I praise Yahweh all the nations and commend him all the people. In in Romans fifteen twelve, and again Isaiah says, There shall be the root of Jesse, and he is arising to be ruler of the nations. Upon him the nations have expectation. Now to this to this passage in Paul we must compare Luke 167 to 80 and for brevity's sake I'm not going to read the whole thing but I'll read from from verse 72 or, or I'm sorry I'll I'll read from verse 68 Blessed is Yahweh the God of Israel and that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to bring about mercy with our fathers, and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, which is given to us. Now, now this is clearly, Luke understood that his gospel was... The fulfillment of all the prophecies to Israel. Paul tells the Romans that same thing. How could one claim to be only a New Testament Christian reading the many prophecies concerning Israel? Excuse me. That the seed of Jacob was to become many nations. And Ephraim alone, a company of nations, one tribe, or or even half a tribe. It is obvious, reading both Luke and Paul, that they could identify those nations, and that is to where they took the gospel message to the white nations of Europe, none of which existed at the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Both Paul and Luke confirm that these nations of Europe were indeed the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that by accepting the gospel, they were fulfilling the prophecies concerning Israel, whom they indeed were. Romans fifteen, fifteen to 16 More daringly have I written to you, brethren in part that I am reminding you through the favor that Yahweh has given to me. For me to be a minister of Yahshua Christ to the nations, performing the service of the good message of Yahweh, in order that it be a presentation acceptable of the nations, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The King James translators really screwed this one up when they wrote that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable. So what offering were Gentiles ever supposed to make? Rather, Yahshua was the Lamb offered on behalf of the nations of Israel. And the Gospel account was then offered to the nations as the news of that offering of Christ. So Paul is saying, and 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 the Greek language and an examination of the Greek will confirm this fully that the presentation of the gospel is to be acceptable to the nations, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And and if you'll read my translation, that's exactly what what it infers in Romans fifteen verses nineteen to thirty three. Paul mentions several place names where he preached the gospel. Here is a general breakdown of who lived in those regions at the time. He mentions Illyrica. This is the leading city of the Illyrians. It's north of Macedonia. The Illyrians were among the dispersed of the Trojans after the fall of Troy, who, leaving the Troad, which is the region of Anatolia where Troy was, After the Trojan War, which is about 1185 BC, they settled on the mainland of Europe near the Adriatic Sea. In Strabo's time, and Strabo is writing in 25 AD, they still had a tribe among them which used the name Dardanians or Dardans, which is the name of the tribe of the Trojans all through the, the books of the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer and the name was said to have come from Darda the Trojan.
1: Now Paul
0: mentions Spain at the time in, in these verses. And at the time Spain was the home of many of the Galatahi or or the same people that became known as Celts, who who we will see later on when we cover the book of Galatians that the Galatians are named after. And Spain was also the home of the Iberian or Phoenician tribes. Paul mentions Macedonia. The Macedonians are descendants, as can be determined from the Greek histories, of the Danan Greeks. And the Greek histories tell us that the Danan Greeks, or the Dani, are the tribe of Dan who left Egypt just before the Exodus and settled in, in what what we now know as Greece. Akahia. Paul mentions Akahia, and, and Akahia was originally a Danan Greek land, but the Dorian Greeks, the Dorians are a tribe that came a, a few generations after the Trojan War and drove the Danans out of the, their their lands into the north, and, and most of the Danans migrated north or became slaves to the Dorians, who who were actually their brethren, their Israelite brethren. And the um by eleven hundred B C the Dorians inhabited most of Acahia and the two chief cities of Acahia were Sparta and Corinth. And and we'll see in Paul's message to the Corinthians that the Dorian Greeks are clearly Israelites. In Romans sixteen twenty five through twenty seven Paul states, Now with ability you are to stand fast in accordance with my good message and the proclamation of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with the revelation of the mystery having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now. Through the prophetic writings, in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith to all of the nations, and discovering that Yahweh alone is wise through Yahshua Christ to whom is honor for the ages truly. The mystery being spoken of here is the identity of the children of Israel and which nations had actually sprung from Abraham's offspring. This is still a mystery to most Christians. I can't imagine what else Paul may have written to the Romans in order to tell them that they were indeed Israelites. Besides an actual chronicle of history, which if, if one truly looks... Is already evident that we have in our Bibles and in the Classics. Before I depart from Romans, i like to discuss Romans 16.20. And in Romans 16.20, Paul states, Now Yahweh of peace will crush the adversary under your feet quickly. The favor of our Prince Yahshua Christ is with you. Now this statement alone is a prophecy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, which happened... About 12 years after Paul wrote his epistle, it shows that Paul linked the struggle amongst the believers and the adversaries in Jerusalem to the two seeds of Genesis 3.15. Paul knew that the Romans were the people of the prince of Daniel chapter 9. Here, in one simple statement, Paul teaches two seed lines.
1: In 1 Corinthians,
0: well, to address 1 Corinthians, it must be noted that the 1 Corinthians that we have in our Bibles is not Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. That was apparently lost, for which, see, verse, chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul states, I had written to you in the letter not to associate with fornicators. As we shall see when we discuss chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul considered race mixers to be fornicators. And that's how Jude, in verse 7 in his short epistle, defines the word. That fornication is basically the pursuit of strange or different flesh. It is quite possible that the lost letter to the Corinthians was much like that to the Romans, proving that the Dorian Greeks were also the seed of Abraham. A Dorian Greek king had written to the high priest at Jerusalem sometime around 160 BC. And this king, in his letter, stated explicitly that the Dorian people of Sparta knew that they were the seed of Abraham Recorded by Flavius Josephus, and the reply to it from Jerusalem in agreement with the statements made in the letter is recorded both by Josephus and in the first book of the Maccabees. It is my argument that the Dorians began settling in Crete from Dor in Palestine, which is a city in the tribe of Manasseh, sometime shortly before the Trojan War. Homer, the poet who wrote about the Trojan War, mentions them as being there in the Iliad, but nowhere else does he mention them. So-called Corinthian architecture has been found at Dor and elsewhere on the coast of Palestine, which predates the Assyrian destruction of Israel. This is, this is a, a part of the archaeological record of Palestine. A couple of generations after Trojan War, the Dorians invaded the Peloponnese in Greece, which was also known in, in Homer's writing as Akahia, and and they either drove off or enslaved the Danan Greeks, who had dwelt there up to that point, and destroyed Mykene, which was their principal city. This must have happened around 1100 BC, or about 50 years before Saul becomes the king in Israel, It is of Corinth that Yahweh told Paul in Acts chapter 18, 9-10. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And that's from the King James. Yahweh was not talking about the Jews where he said of Corinth, that I have much people in this city. He was talking about the Corinthians. The the rest of, of the exposition of this epistle will make that quite evident. In one Corinthians verses chapter one verses four to six, Paul writes I thank my God at all times concerning you, in reference to the favor of Yahweh that is being given to you among the number of Christ Yahshua, seeing that in all you have been enriched in him, in all thought and all knowledge, just as the proof of the anointed has been confirmed in you. The proof of the anointed, not the proof of the Christ, in context, we're going to see that that should be the rendering. The proof of the anointed is that his sheep would hear his voice, and that the children of Israel would accept the gospel. There are Old Testament prophecies that allude to this very thing. Yahweh says, I will walk with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This prophecy is fulfilled in Yahshua Christ. In 1 Corinthians, I'm going to go all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all had passed through the sea. And all up to Moses had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea, and all had eaten the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For so they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was was Christ. Paul is saying that to the Corinthians that their fathers were in the exodus with Moses. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Neither should we commit fornication, just as some of them had committed fornication, and in one day, 23,000 had fallen. In verse 11, he says, Now these things, as as examples, happened to them, and had been written for our admonition. In other words, the Old Testament passages were written for the admonition of Paul and of the Corinthians. To those who have attained to the fulfillments of the of the ages. Here Paul is cl- clearly telling the Corinthians that their ancestors were Israelites and that their ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus. Many so-called pastors love to point out the discrepancy here between the 23,000 number of dead given by Paul and the 24,000 number given in the book of Numbers, in the account which Paul is referring to, which is in chapter 25. Thinking that they are wise, all of these pastors are fools, because they all miss two much more important things here. I really think that this discrepancy was by divine design to draw attention to this account being described, and by it, all of the dumb dog preachers convict themselves, for while they love to show this discrepancy, they all miss the much weightier matters that Paul is telling the Corinthians not to race-mix, as the children of Israel did with the daughters of Moab, and 23,000 or 24,000 of them were slain in one day. They miss the admonition concerning race-mixing, and they miss the fact that the Corinthians are Israelites. Yet all historians know that the Corinthians are Greeks, and therefore they're considered Aryans, or as they like to say, Indo-Europeans. Yet if we accept those terms, so then were the Israelite ancestors. But the dumb dog pastors will never admit it. So here we have a truly meaningless 1,000-person discrepancy, and the pastors miss things which are obviously much more important
1: In 1 Corinthians chapter
0: 10, verse 15, Behold, Israel down through the flesh, or according to the flesh, as the King James has it, are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar. What then do I say? And Paul is talking about people who are eating sacrifices to false gods, people who are sacrificing things to idols, and, and eating them. What then do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Rather, that what whatever the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. Paul's talking about the false religions of, of Europe, of the Greeks and of the Romans. He's talking about the pagan religions. The first century Jews... We're not sacrificing animals to pagan gods. They're in the temple in Jerusalem, sacrificing to Yahweh, and, and a sacrifice like Cain's he'll never accept. Paul is not talking about the Jews. He's talking about Israel down through the flesh. This is Paul's way of saying real, genetic Israel, and not those Edomites in Jerusalem, or anyone else calling themselves Israel. They were the ones in Europe, genetic Israel, whether Dorian Greek or Danan Greek or Trojan or Roman or Parthian or Scythian or Celt, they were the ones who were sacrificing animals on the altars of pagan gods, and they're the nations that Paul is talking about here. In two Corinthians, verse chapter one, verses twenty to twenty two. For however so many of Yahweh's promises there are, with him is the yes, and with him the truth, and with honor to Yahweh through us. Now he who is establishing us with you and the anointed and anoints us is Yahweh, who is also confirming us and is providing the deposits of the Spirit in our hearts. Where are these promises of Yahweh that Paul's talking about? They're in the Old Testament. Remember the conversation which we just had a few minutes ago concerning Romans chapter 15 verses 8 to 12 and Luke chapter 1 verses 67 to 80 that Yahshua Christ had come to confirm the Old Testament promises to our fathers. Paul is teaching Israel identity. He is telling the Corinthians... That they are the children of Israel. And that the promises to Israel are fulfilled in them. This can only be so through the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It can't be some replacement so-called church. Replacement theology does not hold up under the inspection of the scriptures. Dispensationalism does not hold up Under the inspection of the scriptures. The scriptures from the Old Testament to the New, through all of Paul's letters, are entirely consistent. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if one is among the number of Christ a new creation, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come but all things from Yahweh who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and is giving the service of reconciliation to us. How that Yahweh was within Christ reconciling the society to himself, not accounting their sins to them and placing in us the word of that reconciliation. Therefore, on behalf of Christ, we serve as ambassadors, as Yahweh is exhorting through us. We ask on behalf of Christ, you be reconciled to Yahweh. For he who knew not error on on our behalf has caused error in order that we would come into the righteousness of Yahweh with him. Now, earlier in the same chapter, Paul talks about Yahweh's having been slain, on behalf of all and mentions also that we all must appear in front of the judgment seat of the Christ but first we all must only mean all of Israel since Paul has elsewhere shown that the covenants are limited to Israel and and that's evident here and it's evident in Romans 9 and it's evident in Galatians 3 and many other places in Scripture and this is what is meant by reading the Bible in context. Now, he, Paul, in these verses, five times mentioned reconciliation and and or or being reconciled, and you can only be reconciled from someone whom you knew in the first place. Uh, Yahweh says that he only knew the children of Israel. It's very clear throughout the Old Testament. It's explicit in Amos 3.2. Speaking to Israel, he says, Only you have I known amongst all the families of the earth. Israel was married to Yahweh. You couldn't be reconciled to a woman that you were never married to. You couldn't be reconciled to a child, a strange child, who was never your child. Israel is being reconciled to Yahweh, and Paul stresses that over and over again. Now, now there are, a, a lot of people might look at the wider Adamic race and, and the promises to Adam, and it's true that there are two levels of reconciliation which need to be recognized and discussed in the entire context of the biblical story. The first and obvious one is the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh. This could not be done until the resurrection, because Yahweh, as the husband of Israel, had to die in order to satisfy the letter of the law, which is which we have seen explained by Paul in chapter 7 of Romans. The second reconciliation is that of the entire Adamic race of the second coming, as foretold at Genesis 3.22, where it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become of one of, as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever now now this is the tree of life is Joshua Christ and Genesis 322 is the first promise of, of a, a a savior for the adamic race and of a restoration for the adamic race since Paul already defines man in in Romans chapter 5 as Adam if anywhere Paul uses the term all men can be construed as including others besides the children of Israel, it must still be limited to those of the same race of the race of Adam. And and the context of the Bible requires that. For this reason that the entire race of Adam can reach out under the tree of life and, and, and live forever, do we see that all nations blessed in Abraham's seed were all of the Adamic race the Adamic nations which had the the spirit of Yahweh. No other races have any part in this. And and that's that's clearly, they are clearly not included by scripture. In 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul states, For he says, In an acceptable time have I listened to you, and in a day of deliverance have I come to help you. Behold, the present time is well acceptable. Behold, the present day is of deliverance. This is a quote of Isaiah 49.8 in the Septuagint. And and I would like to read that entire passage along with those which surround it, which shall surely demonstrate that Paul intends to address nobody except lost Israel. And, and Isaiah 49 from, from verse 7, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his holy one, to whom, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because Yahweh, because of Yahweh that is faithful and the holy one of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith Yahweh, in, a, in an acceptable time have I heard thee. And in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit desolate heritages. When Paul quotes a passage from the Old Testament, it has to be examined where that passage is coming from. This passage is clearly only spoken of Israel and Paul has already told the Corinthians, as we saw in the first epistle to the Corinthians, that they indeed were among the physical, genetic descendants of the children of Israel. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 14. Do not, and this is my translation, and, and I'm going to read my translation note to establish The veracity of my translation. Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Now I'll skip to verse 17. On which account come out from the midst of them and be separated says the Lord, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you, and I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters. Now, in my translation notes to the epistles of Paul, I have this.
1: I'm I'm sorry. The opening
0: sentence of this verse which is do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens, is very difficult to translate in few words, although it only contains four Greek words. Me, geneste, heterozugantes zugantes, apistois, is here, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. The King James Version has, be not unequally yoked, together with unbelievers. And so many interpret this verse to be a religious statement. Now, the interpretation of this verse as a religious statement would have Paul conflict with his own statements elsewhere, such as those at 1 Corinthians 7, 12-14, where Paul tells the Corinthians that if they're married to an unbelieving spouse, that they should still try to stay with the unbelieving spouse. Therefore, either Paul's a liar, or, or this is not a religious statement. That this is not a religious statement will be evident upon examination of the terms which is which is translated here, which is unequally yoked together in the King James version of the Bible, but in mine it's um, simply do not become yoked together with, al- and and the word aliens is in that definition, and we'll explain that. And I will explain that. The words heterozygio and apistois, and and examining these two words, we'll we'll see what this what this verse means. Heterozygio is a verb which appears nowhere else in the New Testament and it does not appear in the, in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament. However, the adjective heterozugos does appear in the Septuagint at Leviticus 19.19, 19, where the King James Version has, and shalt not thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Now, in the Septuagint, at that same passage... It says the the seventy Greek says do not let your cattle gender and and that word is katoikusis in Greek which implies the act of sexual intercourse with a diverse kind the idea of being yoked already implicit the English trans Breton's English uh, the English translators did not repeat it Breton's English from the Greek varies little from the King James English at Leviticus 19.19, translated from Hebrew. So while the Little and Scott definition for heterozugeo follows the King James Version, which is to be yoked together in unequal partnership, the Little and Scott definition for the adjective, which is used at Leviticus 19.19, means... Coupled with an animal of a diverse kind. And of people, this can only mean to be coupled with someone of another race. So even though we have the the verb here in Corinthians, heterozygeo, Little and Scott define a, as coupled, yoked together in unequal partnership, the adjective heterozougos, which is the same word but a different form, means coupled with an animal of a diverse kind. And that is how the same exact word is used in Leviticus 19.19, where we're told, yoking two animals together to plow a field, not to use two animals of different kinds. Here, I prefer to use that same definition of the word that this means yoked together with people of another race. Preferring the idea that the verb used by Paul surely means the same thing that the adjective does in the Greek scriptures of the Septuagint, which Paul often quoted verbatim. Paul quoted the Septuagint verbatim in 75% of Paul's quotes, they're word for word from the Greek Septuagint. Paul must have known what this word meant at Leviticus 19:19, 19, 19, and he must be using it in that same manner here. So this this word here means do not become yoked together with aliens. Now the word untrustworthy or In the King James, unbelievers. Apistos is that word, and it's an adjective. And Little and Scott define it not to be trusted, not trustworthy, distrusted, faithless. And it's treated in the King James as a noun. But it's an adjective, and in my translation, I have this verse as an adjective, and it modifies the noun, the subject. Which we aren't to become yoked to aliens who are untrustworthy or outside of the faith or faithless and and any one of those those renderings it is is legitimate. This verse is not a religious statement, it's a racial statement and and it's very clear, and if it's interpreted that way then it is not in conflict with Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he tells the Corinthians that if they're married to somebody outside of the faith who can't accept the gospel, that they should nevertheless remain married as long as it's possible. With with all of... Alright, concerning... I'm going to skip ahead... For, for the sake of brevity, because it's 9:22, and I really wanted to get through more of this, and, and I was disturbed by this power outage. In closing Paul's epistle, he uh, and of two Corinthians, he again talks about restoration, something which can only happen if you belong to Yahweh in the first place. And and this is two Corinthians thirteen eleven. Furthermore, brethren, be delighted. Be restored, be encouraged, be like-minded, be at peace. And, and he again talks about restoration, which is something that can only happen if you belong to Yahweh in the first place. And only Israel and only the people in the loins of Isaac belong to Yahweh. Here are some scriptures showing that Israel belongs to Yahweh. Leviticus 20:26, 20, And ye shall be holy unto me. For I, Yahweh, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that you should be mine. Isaiah 29:22 and 23. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face wax pale. But when he seeth his children the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify thy name, and sanctify the holy one of jacob and shall fear the god of israel isaiah 45 4 for jacob my servant's sake and israel mine elect i have even called thee by thy name i have surnamed thee thou though thou hast not known me and isaiah is talking about the dispersed of israel yahweh has named them and nobody else amos 3 2 you only have i known of all the families of the earth Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. There are 217 verses in the Bible where the children of Israel are referred to as my people. And all of them are Yahweh speaking to Israel. Five of them are in the New Testament. Acts 7.34, Romans 9.25-26, and 26, 2 Corinthians 6.16, and Revelation 18.4. The context of the Bible never changes. Israel is Yahweh's people in the Old Testament, and Israel is Yahweh's people in the New Testament. And I I hope that we have seen that tonight, that Paul taught that in three of his epistles, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians. And Paul also told us to separate ourselves from the impure, which are those who are not cleansed on the cross of Christ by his blood, at verses At at 2 Corinthians 6.17, on which account, come out from the midst of them and be separated, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you, and Paul means the same people that the Old Testament prophets meant when they wrote those same words. And, And with this I will end the program, and I'm sorry I couldn't quite get all but 13 pages of the 22 pages of notes I wanted to cover. Hopefully, maybe we'll be able to finish the rest of this again one day soon. Thank you for listening, and this is William for Eli James, and we'll see you tomorrow at noon on The Voice of Christian Israel. I will have a British identity adherent, or a former British identity adherent, Olam Foldla, tomorrow at noon on The Voice of Christian Israel. Thank you, and good night.